I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 as we continue our study on 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 6, we'll begin reading in verse 9. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab the one in front of you or the text should be there in your worship guide. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And this is the word of the Lord. If you would pray with me. Father, we ask that through your spirit you bring great clarity and conviction through this text. May we hear your heart for us. Lord, I pray that anything that might be harmful or hurtful or confusing, you would blow away. I pray that only your words would remain. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, let me explain to you the next three weeks. Today, we're going to be looking at this chapter, which deals with sexuality. Uh, chapter 7 continues these themes, and we're going to be looking at sex, singleness, and marriage when we get to chapter 7, which normally we would hit next week, but next week is Easter, and I honestly just didn't feel like preaching on sex on Easter. Uh, <clears throat> so, so I'm not going to do that next week. I, I could have made it work, <clears throat> but... We'll be continuing this series, if you will, this kind of the part two of this message uh, when we get to chapter seven in two weeks. Uh, now, I mentioned this when we started our series on Corinthians, but you really have to understand Corinth if you're to understand all the things that Paul is talking about, especially as it comes to this chapter. 
The Corinth that Paul is writing to is only 100 years old. It was once leveled by the Roman Empire, but the Romans knew it had too much of a strategic importance to just lay in ruins, and so they rebuilt the city 100 years ago, or 100 years earlier, um, and the city flourished. Uh, within 100 years, that city had grown to over 500,000 people because of its strategic location. It's, it's the very definition of what we would call a boom town. And, and so the people from all over the empire were flocking to Corinth. Young people needing a job or, or wanting an adventure were heading to this port city. If you were ambitious and you wanted to make a name for yourself or, or make a buck, this was the place to go. And of of course, with Corinth being such a new place, nobody had any deep roots in the city. Nobody had been there for generations. Most people had left their family behind, their hometowns behind. And with that, they left behind all of those stabilizing influences that were once upon their lives. So you've got this thriving port city full of young, adventurous 20-somethings who no longer have any attachments to family and who are now living in close, close proximity to one another. And so the obvious result of this was that this was a city full of sexual energy, full of sexual temptation. Uh, the city um, was obsessed with sex. Uh, overlooking the city is, was a hill called the Acro-Corinth, um, and on this hill was where they had built a temple to their god, and the ruins of this Acro-Corinth are still there today. Uh, every city in the Roman Empire typically had its pa patron god, and so for Corinth, of course, the patron deity was Aphrodite, the goddess of love and the goddess of sex. And every single night, one thousand temple prostitutes would come down the Acrocorinth into the city, offering their services to everyone. One thousand every single night. Sex became what the Corinthians' lives revolved around. It was, it was the air that they breathed. The city became so obsessed with sex that uh, the name Corinth or Corinthian actually became an adjective, all right? It's never a good thing if your city becomes an adjective. And, and Corinthian, to be a Corinthian was, was an adjective. It meant basically you would have sex with, with anybody or anything. And so it was used as a pejorative term throughout the Roman Empire. Corinth reminds me a little bit of Vegas. Uh, <clears throat> as a teenager, my, my parents, we took a family vacation to Vegas, uh, which probably really surprises you now. But, but back then... Uh, the promotional campaigns, the ad campaigns for Vegas were wholesome. I mean, yes, it was a place that you could go and gamble, but they advertised themselves as being a place of wholesome fun for your entire family. Um, and so they would try to get the entire family to come to Vegas. Um, and then, you know, finally it dawned on them that nobody wants to take their entire family in the middle of the desert, in the middle of nowhere, and be stuck with them with almost nothing to do. Uh, and so they decided to redo their promotional campaign. So they finally settled on the one we all know. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And Vegas boomed. 
It absolutely boomed. Then, then their location no longer worked against them. It worked for them. Come, be out in the middle of the desert in the middle of nowhere. And you could do whatever you want and nobody's going to know. What you do here stays here. Indulge every appetite. And it kind of doesn't really even count because after all, it's just Vegas. And the city just flourished. And I've talked to many people who've come back from Vegas who have done some terrible things. And, and when you ask them about it, they're like, well, it's just Vegas. Like, like that's an answer, you know, that it's just, it's just Vegas. So of course I would do that. It doesn't really count. I actually find a lot of similarities. Um, you know, I did college ministry for eight or nine years. And a lot of similarities between Corinth and Vegas with college life. In which you have a bunch of 20-somethings living in close proximity to one another, away for the first time from the stabilizing influences of their family, and then they believe this lie. What happens in college just stays in college. It, it becomes actually the place where you're encouraged maybe even to experiment. You're encouraged to sow your wild oats, to do all of this during this time, and then you move on with your life as if none of that really mattered. Somehow you're detached from that college experience. But Paul says you're not detached from that. Uh, what, what you do with your body actually remains with your body. These things matter. Now, now Paul, he starts off this section of his letter by, by giving us a list. It's quite a list. It, it makes us squirm when we read it. That's actually when the fire alarm was supposed to go off. <laughs> and so we could just end it there, but the timing was a little off there. Uh, let's look through this list again. Uh, sorry if I'm squeaking like a child going through puberty. I've just sinus infection. <clears throat> Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, the word sexual immorality there is the word pornea. It's where we get the word pornography. Um, and pornea is always translated sexual immorality throughout the Bible. And it simply means this, any sex outside of marriage, any sex outside of marriage is pornea or sexual immorality. So adultery is sexual immorality. Homosexuality is sexual immorality. And, and we'll look a little bit more at that in a bit. Now it's important to note here, especially in this day and age, when there's so much focus on what these words actually mean, that Paul here is talking about actions. He's not divorcing a, a title from the act. Uh, so he's not talking about desire. He is talking about acting upon these desires and living this lifestyle. And so when Paul here lists adulterers and idolaters and greedy and homosexuals, he's talking about people who are practicing such a lifestyle. And this is why he could say in verse 11, and such were some of you. you. You were this. 
After you became a Christian, though, you stopped doing these things, even though you still very well might have had an impulse to keep doing these things. The desire might still be there, but, but you have stopped doing this. Why? Because you're no longer a slave to your impulses, or as Paul says, I will not be enslaved or mastered by anything. Okay, so we, we all have fallen desires. And just because you became a Christian, that doesn't mean that those desires, those evil desires, instantly go away or ever go away. It doesn't mean that you no longer are going to covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's spouse. It doesn't mean that you are no longer going to want to take another person's possessions or that you are no longer going to be attracted to somebody of the same sex. These desires might still very well be present in us as believers, as Christians. But what Paul is saying is you are no longer a slave to those desires. You have been set free. Christ has set you free from this. And now your desire to obey Jesus outweighs any of those other desires. Your desire to obey Jesus becomes the controlling desire in your life. You used to be those things, but now you're Christ. You belong to him. It's, it'd probably be helpful to know that even Paul had some of these desires. Even when he became a Christian, these desires didn't go away. Later in this chapter, or in this book, in chapter 15, Paul says that he has to die to these desires every day. He says these words in 1531. He says, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, when Paul talks about fighting wild beasts, you need to understand that wild beasts is just a common idiom for lust. The wild beast, he's, he's fighting lust as a single man who's going through all of these cities, cities that many of them are saturated with sexual immorality. Paul had to battle this. And he says, I have to die to my desires as a single guy. I have to die daily to this. And then he goes, but believe me, if I didn't believe in the resurrection, I wouldn't. If I didn't believe in a judgment day, that we would be raised and there would be a judgment day, I would eat, drink, and for tomorrow I'd die because it is hard to fight this wild beast. I have to die every day to these desires. And he would tell the Galatians later, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but it is Christ who lives in me. So Paul had the desires. He's just dying to them. Now, the Corinthians, they had two dominant views, predominant views on sex. There were some who thought that, um, that you should abstain completely from sex. That sex was wrong. It's dirty. Uh, even within marriage, you should not have sex. We'll look at this when we get to chapter 7. People, they when they thought of sex, they thought of it as, as just sinful, as just bad, ugly, dirty, filthy. And, and the goal was 
to be free from things like that, to be free from your body, which you saw as sinful. And, and Paul, he deals with this view later by reminding people that no, actually, sex is God's gift to humanity. It's a beautiful, glorious gift to be used um, and enjoyed within marriage. Um, Paul is by no means a prude. Sex is a pleasurable, good gift from God, and he exalts sex to a higher position than the Corinthians originally had. Uh, the, the other view, which is the more dominant view, is found in the first part of verse 13. Paul is quoting the Corinthians here. When we read, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. In other words, <clears throat> the Corinthians, they were saying sex is just an appetite. I mean, when you get hungry, you eat food. When you have sexual desire, you have sex, just like you would any appetite. And, and prostitution was, was viewed in that day largely like a vending machine, really, you got hungry, you go, you put in your change, and you, and you get something to satisfy your hunger. And that's how they viewed prostitutes. And it was not a big deal at all to go and to visit a prostitute to satisfy those urges. Um, as a matter of fact, in the Corinthian culture, the more you study it, the more you realize actually food and sex went together a lot. And so if you were part of the Corinthian elite and you had people over for dinner, you were expected after dinner to provide sexual entertainment for your guest. Um, they even had a word for it, the after dinners, um, in which with dessert, you were to have sex. And, and so why wouldn't you? I mean, you're hungry, you eat, you have sexual desire, you fulfill it. Could you imagine being a Christian in that culture? I mean, could, could you imagine that? Uh, just imagine your first Friday night. I mean, you just came to know the Lord. You know, Paul was preaching. You, you came to know the Lord. And now it's your first Friday night with your friends. And so, you know, you do the typical thing, you know, after spending an hour trying to decide where you eat, you go and you eat. And, uh, and, and then after dinner, you go back to somebody's place and you're there and everybody just kind of begins, you know, taking off their shirts, their clothes. And you're just like, you're sitting on the couch. Now you're perspiring. You're the only one who doesn't have clothes. And uh, people are like, well, what, what's the big deal? And you're like, well, you know, I just kind of thought we'd maybe do something different tonight. Um, <laughs> you know, I thought we'd play Settlers of Catan or you know, <laughs> Monopoly. And, you know, uh, instantly you stood out. People were like, what do you, what do you mean? We do, we do this all the time. Your life has been utterly transformed. God's turning your life upside down. And the people would have thought you were crazy. I love what Tim Keller said about this passage. Um, he pointed out that the Corinthians, they were once promiscuous with their sex, and they held tight to their money. And now God was asking them to be promiscuous with their money and to sanctify their sex and hold tight to it. Basically, God was turning their entire world upside down. He said, before you just used to just have sex with whoever, now I want you to give money out to whoever. But I want you to hold close this sacred gift that I've given you. Keep it within marriage. Uh, now, the, 
Corinthian view of sex is by far the dominant view of sex today. It's an appetite that needs to be met. If you have the desire, we'll go and meet that desire. And actually, desire has become the foundation or the the cornerstone in which our entire sexual ethic is being built on today. What you desire has to be what's right. And we build our ethic on this. To, To deny your desire is seem to be denying the life that you were meant to live. It, it, it seems to be signing up for an unfulfilled life. <clears throat> so what does Paul say to this? How does he respond to this casual view of sex? He responds by saying two things. First, that we are not to be deceived by our desires. We're not to be deceived by our desires. And then he gives them a new view of the body. He holds the body up in high esteem. He says, there is no such thing as casual sex. He elevates the idea of sex far beyond anything they could have ever imagined. It's far more glorious and beautiful than they think. So let's first look at being deceived by our desires. In verse 9, Paul says, do not be deceived. It's a phrase he uses elsewhere in Scripture as well. In Ephesians 5, when he's also talking about sexual immorality, he says the same thing. He says, do not be deceived. He says this, for for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you. So once again, when Paul is talking about sex, coveting, idolatry, inheriting inheriting the kingdom of God. He's saying we can be deceived. We can be deceived about these things. The Corinthians were deceived in thinking that their desires determined what was right. Now, of course, Adam and Eve, they were deceived. They were deceived by their desires. Uh, so, So Eve, after she sinned, after she took the fruit, and God asks her, what have you done? She says, the serpent deceived me. He deceived me. And this is why I did this one thing you asked me not to do. Now, how did the serpent deceive her? Well, he started by telling her a lie that has been going on today. And it's this. Did God really say you can't do that? Did God really say that? He gets her to start questioning what God has clearly said in his word. God has clearly spoken about these things, but the first thing Satan does is go, really? Did he really clearly say that? And she begins to question. And then he, he feeds on this. He says, ah, you basically, you know, I know you want to eat that fruit. You desire that fruit, don't you? <clears throat> Why would God put forth something right in front of you that you desire so much and ask you not to partake in it? What kind of God does that? God's holding back on you. God's not good. How can you trust him 
to do such a thing like that. I mean, if you don't take this, you are going to live an unfulfilled life. And so, of course, she believes the lie, and she partakes, she takes of this fruit. And what she thought would so certainly lead to life and to joy led to her death and her destruction. And let's be honest here. When we look at the sins that Paul has laid out in this list, uh, the reason that so many of us do those things is because we have bought into the same lies, that we have been deceived. And so we desire something. Perhaps it's sex outside of marriage. We desire it. Or it could be possessions. We need more. Or that we need to be tight-fisted with what we have. Or perhaps it's to pursue a romantic relationship with someone of the same sex. We desire these things. And we think, well, why do I have this desire? And then God doesn't want me to act upon it. I mean, it's just right there for me. Why doesn't he want me to take this? And you begin to doubt God's goodness. And that to not take this is to live an unfulfilling life. Or maybe you begin to doubt God at his word. Did God really say that this was wrong? And you begin to do some mental gymnastics as you begin to interpret his word. We fall into the same deceit. Eve should have trusted that God would fulfill her ultimate desires. Hear me, God is no man's debtor. Any sacrifice you make for him, he will pay back a thousandfold. She should have trusted. So Paul warns us here that we should not be deceived. God's instructions are clear, and we should trust them that they are for our good and therefore his glory. Now, if Paul, hear me, if he had stopped right there and never said another word, that would have been enough for us that he's just clearly outlined what is right and what is wrong. But Paul, in his kindness to us, he actually tells us some of the reasons why. He doesn't go into full detail here. He does that elsewhere in Scripture, but he does give us some of the reasons why for these things, why sexual immorality is wrong. And he begins by telling us that we have a far too limited and small view of the body. The Corinthians thought little of their bodies. They thought what they did to them really didn't matter because it's only your spirit that matters. The body would, of course, someday be destroyed, but your spirit endures forever, and so that's what you really need to focus on. And, and of course, you know, even some of our modern hymns focus on that. You know, I'll fly away. Hallelujah. When I die, you know, then I'm going to fly away, leave this body behind. That's all that matters. And we have this low view of the body. And so who really cares what the body does? If it's hungry, feed it. If it wants sex, give it sex. And Paul, he says, no. It's not that the food is for stomach and the stomach is for food. Let me give you a new saying. The body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. What you do with your body matters. Because hear me, the body is not meant for destruction. The body is meant for resurrection. And what you do with this body endures God has a high value on your body. So much so that later he talks about even his spirit comes to live inside of our body. Don't you dare put a low view on the body because Christ has not. Our body is not meant for destruction. It is meant for resurrection. 
So what we do with our bodies matter. And then Paul, he goes on to explain. He says, you know, it matters so much, not just our soul, but our bodies do. And the, and the fact is this, body and soul are never meant to be separated. They're never meant to be separated. Yet sex outside of marriage is an attempt to divide body and soul. That's his main argument here. Sex outside of marriage divides body and soul. Look at verse 16. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. This is a astonishing, world-shattering view of sex that Paul just throws out there. He gives us an example of sexual immorality. Once again, sex outside of marriage is sexual immorality, and he, he uses the example of a prostitute here. So very casual sex. <clears throat> and he says that when you have sex with someone, you, you're physically joined with them. When you join yourself to a prostitute, but then he says you become one body, or then he quotes Genesis, you become one flesh. And, and flesh, the term he's using here, is often used throughout Scripture to, to talk about persons, personhood. Clearly, when he quotes Genesis 2, he's talking about persons. The two shall become one flesh. They shall become united in personhood. That's what Paul is saying here. Two become one flesh. Two become one person. And you should never try to unite just your body with someone without trying to unite your person with someone. Said, so God forbid that that ever happen. It's a horrible thing to be joined together physically, but not to be joined together uh, spiritually or, or, or personally with the other person. God did not design you to give away your body without giving away your soul, is what he is saying. The two shall become one flesh. So sex outside of an absolute commitment to another person is attempting to separate body and soul. So if, if you were vulnerable with somebody, completely vulnerable with somebody physically, and let's face it, sex is about as vulnerable as you can get physically. It's when you have removed your clothes and you are, you are naked before the other person. It's as vulnerable as you could get. And what Paul is saying is if you have made yourself so vulnerable physically, but not made yourself vulnerable uh, emotionally, vulnerable with your emotions, or with your money, or with your time, or with your whole person, it says you do that, what you're telling that person is, I just want your body, but I don't want your person. I want you to be committed to me physically, but I don't really want your commitment as a person. And body and soul were not meant to be split. So when God looks at people trying to split body and soul, and remember, he looks, when he looks at us, he sees us body and soul together. He sees a mutilation of what he's created, us trying to tear apart who we are. And he's thinking, why would you ever mutilate such a beautiful thing? What you do with your body needs to be a reflection of what you do with your soul. So hear me, humans are the only species 
the only species that has sex face-to-face, heart-to-heart. We're the only species that do that. That is not by accident. It's because there is a shared personhood there. God made the physical act of sex to mirror the spiritual act, which is the joining together of persons to become one in marriage. This is also one of the reasons that homosexuality is wrong. Um, The physical nature of sex, once again, is to mirror the spiritual nature of sex. Two people becoming one body, becoming one person. This cannot happen in a homosexual relationship. Uh, God designed sex to be between complementary parts that join together. It's, It's obvious that male and female were designed to be joined together. And these complementary parts, these complementary natures of man and woman, they ultimately point to our marriage with Christ and the complementary natures of Jesus and us joining together. Two very distinct natures, but someday becoming one. It speaks to the mystery of Christ and his church. Let me just say a few words about homosexuality. It's, it's so interesting. It's such a hotbed and a divisive issue. About a year ago, actually it was around Easter, a year ago, um, the paper was interviewing me for uh, just what's going on here at our church because it was just growing so rapidly in the middle of Avondale. And like, how can a, you know, a conservative evangelical church be thriving in the middle of this community? And so the reporter comes here and is interviewing Lauren and I. And the very first question, the very first question he asks is, so what's your view on homosexuality? Because he knows, like, he's looking for a soundbite. He's looking for something you could put out there and divide. Um, it's the issue. Now hear me, Paul does not make homosexuality out to be the worst sin. Not by any means, nor does the rest of Scripture exalt that as somehow the most heinous sin there is. Homosexuality here is just kind of listed as another form of sexual immorality. No worse than adultery. No worse than just having sex outside of marriage. Also no worse than greed or swindling or stealing. As a matter of fact, if you were to go through Scripture, you will find the, the verses that directly deal with Scripture, you're only going to find about seven of them. That, I mean, that deal with homosexuality. Only about seven verses that directly deal with homosexuality. It's not there very much. But do you know how many verses deal with greed? God hammers in the fact that we need to change our greedy hearts. And there might be so much more damage from greed in our hearts than there is about homosexuality. Another reason, though, I do think that it's not mentioned that much in Scripture is because there has never been controversy over homosexuality throughout the history of the church. It has readily been accepted as clearly this is not God's plan. And then the church has moved on. So homosexuality is certainly not the worst thing, but Paul says it also is not the best thing. It's not the right thing for us. Sex wasn't intended to be that way. 
the interlocking of our bodies is to mirror the interlocking of our persons. That's how God created it, and a homosexual relationship cannot do that. There is no face-to-face, and there is no heart-to-heart interlocking of bodies. He is not saying that the homosexual uh, sex cannot be pleasurable. It cannot be fun. He is not saying that any more than saying sexual immorality cannot be pleasurable or fun. He's saying it falls just way short of God's best. It falls short of God's design. Why would you want to do that? Now, I realize in saying this that I'm going completely against culture. I realize this. There's probably going to be little lines of this sermon pulled out and put all over social media. Who knows? Um, But I I want you to hear me say this. Paul was clearly going against his culture. There's an argument that goes out there that Paul was just a victim of his times. So, of course, he said these things. No. Sexual immorality and homosexuality were far more accepted in his culture than in ours. And Paul stood up to it and he says, I don't know, I don't care what culture preaches. This is clearly not God's design. Don't distort this beautiful gift God has given us. And so he took a took a brave step to say that as clearly as he can. Sex is a symbol of Christ's relationship to the church. It needs to be preserved. Uh, Paul is actually going to talk more about that in other letters. And he does hint about that in in verse 17. We'll we'll end with this. Let's look at verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Paul compares two people becoming one flesh to us being joined to the Lord. Sex is meant to be a representation of our relationship with Jesus. A relationship that's not just physical, but it's emotional, spiritual. It's our whole self-giving for a life-transforming encounter. That's what sexual union is supposed to be. It's to affect our entire being in which we give our whole self to someone, not just partially. And hear, hear me on this. Jesus will not allow you to sleep with him. He will not allow you to use him in that way. And for you to come to him on your terms and maybe just throw up a prayer here or there and just sleep with him. What he demands from you is total lifelong commitment. Sex, which points to our relationship with him, has the same, the same guidelines, total lifelong commitment to one another. It's the symbol that he has given us. And let me tell you, if sex is just the symbol, can you imagine, can you imagine what the real thing is going to be? I love it at weddings. I always read from Genesis 2 and, uh, <clears throat> and where the two shall become one flesh. And one day, that will apply to us in Christ. Right now it doesn't because Christ has his resurrected body and, and, and there's, there could be no joining there. But I love it that one day we will rise again because he is risen. 
Uh, he will give us new resurrected bodies, and he's going to say the exact same thing that Adam said when he saw Eve. He's going to go, ah, at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and we'll be united with Jesus forever. Sex is the symbol of that day. It's something that is to be preserved and something that we should rejoice and delight in with God's instruction and his guidelines being used within marriage. Hear me. Jesus is a lover with a a passion for you that is far more wild than anything this world has to offer. Don't settle for anything less. And I know that when I preach a sermon like this, it's likely to stir up a whole lot of things. Every person in here struggles with one of these things on this list. I want you to clearly hear me say that Jesus offers forgiveness for you. His blood can wash you clean, clean not just partially, but fully of your sin. Wash you as whiter than snow. And if you have not reached out, if you have not trusted in Jesus, I plead for you to do so because there is a new life that you cannot imagine that he offers to you. Once again, his love for you is far more passionate and wild than anything this world has to offer. You would pray with me. Father, I pray we would not settle for anything less than your best. And so, Lord, in this moment where there needs to be conviction, convict us. Where there needs to be healing, heal us. Lord, have your way with us. And may we delight in you and in the gifts that you have given us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.